uh, Dr. David Nystrom. David's been here with us at least once, I think twice before. Uh, He's filled this pulpit, and we've been wonderfully encouraged from God's Word through his teaching. He also, some of you will recall, he was also our guest at our Tahoe retreat one year, and that was just a fantastic weekend spent with him and was so well received. I first met David when I was a student at Fuller Theological Seminary. He was one of my professors, and I took, I think, two of your classes, maybe three, and immediately I felt um, I was just drawn to his style, his transparency, his vulnerability, his um, obvious um, love for God and desire to help others love God. Um, David was the was an adjunct professor at Fuller while also being the vice president of academics at William Jessup University. And then God called him and his family down to Southern California where he served as the provost of Biola University for a few years. Uh, and then more recently, God has called them back up north, and now he is teaching at Western Seminary. Uh, I was delightfully surprised when a couple of months ago I got an email out of the blue from David um, saying he's back in town and he would love to reconnect. And so we have reconnected our friendship. We've rekindled that friendship, sharing meals and cups of coffee. And and uh, I'm just delighted to call you my friend and to be a friend to you. I could go on and on about his resume. I will say this. He just flew in from from a speaking engagement in India and he literally rearranged his schedule to be here for me and for you. So will you please welcome with me with great gratitude Dr. David Nystrom. Morning. Some of you aren't sure that that's a good morning, apparently. I'm sorry. Yeah, I know. That's the, yeah, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the basic rule is you're supposed to, if you're preaching, you're supposed to, uh, you know, stay up here in a, in a, at, a, at a distance that's decent and orderly. Um, but I almost never follow the rules, so um, we'll see how it goes. How's everybody doing? All right. Okay. I'm okay. Yeah, yeah. I was in India for like ten days. So I'm. I'm. Uh, uh, do you care? You want to know why? About a little bit. Okay. Where? After a little while, you'll say, "Yeah, I don't care anymore." So <laughs> you can just tell me that. Raise your hand or something. See, I'm already breaking the rules. <laughs> already coming. Um, so I'm on the board of a small foundation, meaning uh, less than about a hundred thousand dollars a year, uh, and we sponsor the only. PhD program in Christian studies uh, from an evangelical perspective anywhere in India. So, um, and it is intentionally um, multi-class uh, cast in its in the students it accepts into the program. So it's you know it's it's uh, trying to provide leadership for a burgeoning Christian movement in India among the what's the so-called Dalit uh, class. So there's actually people below the four. I don't know how much you know about the caste system, but it's the, it's the hundreds of castes 
farmer's cast, etc., that are below, that are like in the untouchables in that whole category. And uh, there's a guy there who uh, I actually, uh, a friend of mine, uh, become a friend, who is, um, uh, I spent a couple days with in Delhi, uh, and he's one of these people that God has really or, uh, uh, blessed, ordained, uh, is with, um, and he, he, just good things happen when he's around. So I spent two days with him. I met the head of the farmer's cast, the whole farmer's cast, the head of the sweeper's cast, the head of the uh, another cast, so three cast, the uh, a member of parliament, an ousted member of parliament, a member of the prime minister's uh, uh, council, it'd be like the meeting, uh, the, uh, you know, the U.S. Secretary of the Interior. Um, I mean, all, this, all these people know this guy, you know, and like they're coming, you know, they're, they're rearranging their schedule for him to come and, and bring me, like not that they care about me so much, but, but it was just so powerful to see how, how um, what's happening there is that, uh, it looks like to me, is that um, God is using this guy Sunil to bring folks together for them to recognize that they're, they have more political power um, when they know each other. And I don't know if you've thought much about this, but let me, I'll, I'll do it aside. Um, the, the Christian gospel, this notion that in Christ there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor female nor female, is incredibly corrosive of, uh, of stratified social systems. So that's what made the Romans so upset about the Christian gospel. One of the things that made it so upset is because their system, the Roman system, was predicated on, on a, a, um, uh, an intense, intentional system of social stratification, of saying you're better, people that, that, that are this income level are better than others. And so uh, when in the, in the Christian movement, there's this idea that, boy, within the church, we actually need each other. We don't see each other through the lens that the world sees, but through the gifts that God has given us, and, and we operate like a body, like we actually need one another. And uh, so um, that, I think, it's pretty exciting for me to see this. It looks to me like this could be happening all over again in India, that because these folks are coming together and they're becoming, some of them, the caste leaders are becoming believers themselves. I spent an hour with a guy who's another caste leader who is this close to announcing to the members of his caste that he's become a Christian. And, and uh, this, you know, I don't know if you think much about or know about how people movements work, but they often, once the leader joins, then that makes it easier for everyone else to join. So that was pretty, I mean, that was just wacky, uh, crazy. Like, I'm wearing, like, the same shirt I've worn for three days, and I'm smelly, and I'm uh, all of a sudden, I don't know if you care about that, but anyway, you know how it is when you're traveling. But, but wow, it was, just, it was just really powerful. And then there were these three days of meetings. I love meetings. Don't you love? I'm just kidding. <laughs> So anyway, that's what I said. Okay, that's enough. Okay. Uh, oh, uh, do you want to know any more about me? Do you care? <laughs> okay. I mean, not, not everybody. Uh, my daughter could care less about me. So um, so I grew up in the Bay Area. Um, uh, uh, but I lived for a while in Sacramento, uh, Roseville. My uncles were farmers. So I spent some time growing up with my, living with my one uncle and aunt. If you can picture in uh, where Watt Avenue, the far north end of Watt Avenue, where it hits Baseline Road. Can you picture that? So that, those properties, like the fields to the south, on either side of, south of Baseline Road, on either side of White Avenue, I'm pretty sure I'm the last person to drive a tractor over those. <laughs> pretty sure, about 25 years ago. So um, got a little bit of city, a little bit of country in me. Uh, put myself, left home when I was 17, went myself through school. I've got, I did my PhD work in two areas, Roman social history and New Testament theology. 
I mean, that, I'm really fun at parties, you know, got great <laughs> stories. <laughs> Am I mar uh, I'm not. No, no, no Nystrom in this country wants to take any, uh, any sort of connection to me. So, but I know there, uh, there's, there are Nystroms here in, in, uh, here in, this, in the church, right? Hi, Norm. How's it going? Svenska, Norm. Svenska? Nej? No? Okay, so, uh, yeah, so that's, um, that was a little Swedish. So, um, nice to meet you. Have you uh, yeah, I think that I remember that, yeah. Your son is also a David. Yeah, because we had bre we had lunch together like eight years ago. It was the weirdest thing to like eat, have a meal with another David. But his middle name is K is a K or something like that, right? Keith. Keith, yeah. And he's like really he's like successful like crazy. Like he's some, right? <laughs> Unlike me, was I like still screwing around? But um, okay, I'm I'm wasting too much time. We're gonna we're gonna look at a story today. It, it's Matthew five. I don't know if you thought much about. I mean, Mark five. You want to turn? You might want to turn your Bibles. You have your Bibles to Mark five, beginning verse twenty one. I don't know if you thought much about stories. Um, I think for a lot of us, I mean, stories are, we may remember that when we were kids, stories are very important. But uh, as adults, we may, maybe we start to not have so much respect for stories. Um, and we think about them, uh, you know, we relegate them to the nurseries and the playgrounds of childhood, which is really a mistake because stories have tremendous power. In 1713, Joseph Addison's play, Cato, 1713, his play Cato was performed for the first time on the London stage. It's the story of the Roman aristocrat Cato, who was a, an older contemporary of Julius Caesar. And he watched the career of Julius Caesar, the arc of the career of Julius Caesar, and he saw in even, the, even the young Caesar, 35-year-old, he saw in him someone who was really dangerous. That he, he feared that he might do what he actually did do. He wrecked the, the Roman Republic. It had been a republic... Uh, a governmental system much like ours and he became a dictator and led the way then to the imperial period where it was no longer run by the people, by the organs of government but run by a single individual, the emperor. So Cato saw in him somebody who was really dangerous and he was trying to wake people up to the, uh, to the danger to self-government. That's the idea of the play. It became very popular in London it became wildly popular in the American colonies. It was George Washington's favorite play. The long winter at Valley Forge to steal the resolve of his soldiers. Imagine what that would have been like at Valley Forge. No food, bitter cold, poor, poor provisions, and you're, and you're enduring there for some, for some thin dream. And Washington at his own expense, brings in a troop of players, sets up a stage to perform this play, to steal the resolve of his soldiers. Give me liberty or give me death. Patrick Henry. I regret, but I have but one life to give for my country, Nathan Hale. Actually, they didn't invent those things. They ripped them off from, from Addison's play. So the power of a story, the story of something that happened 1,600 years before, 1,700 years before, then recreated. And, and even those, those phrases and, and, and the, this human spirit 
to, uh, to connect itself, to steal itself to some grander vision because of that story. I mean, stories are tremendously powerful. So I'm going to read a story for you, and then when I'm done reading, I'm going to ask you this question. What do you see? So you're going to have to pay, well, you don't have to pay attention, but uh, I hope you will. Because this isn't just a story. It's a story of what actually happened. What happened in this day, there were people like us who were there in the, in the crowd who saw Jesus do and heard him say what the story represents him saying. And they must have had reactions, like, what's he doing? What does that mean? So listen to the story that way. Try to put yourself there. Is that okay? I had one person said it was okay. So that's enough for me, though. That's all I can. That's all I need, just one person. Mark 5, 21. When Jesus had again crossed over by, the boat, uh, by boat to the other side of the lake, he, he, this was the, he'd been where the, the garrison demoniac, remember that guy, and the, and get, uh, the demons get go, uh, cast into the pigs. When Jesus had crossed over uh, by boat from the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue rulers named Jairus came there. Seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she got worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, If I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized the power had gone off from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched my clothes? Uh, you see the people crowding around you, his disciples answered. And yet, you can ask, Who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet. And trembling with fear, she told them the whole truth. She said to her daughter, Your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some men came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter's dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Ignoring what they said, Jesus told the synagogue ruler, don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue ruler, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, Why all this commotion and wailing? The child isn't dead but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and, the, and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means, Little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl stood up and walked around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. And he gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. So what do you see? Yeah, he had faith. I think that's true, right? Doesn't it look like he's got faith? I mean, he's got at least enough faith to go and, and seek this guy out. Maybe the faith of desperation, but he believes it's possible. Yeah, what else do you see? Okay, there's, yeah, the heal, uh, she, uh, she's healed. I, mean, I don't know if you know, but I mean, healing somebody and raising someone from the dead, these, these are kind of, you know, pretty good. Yeah, you know, they're pretty, pretty extraordinary. Even the woman had faith. 
Yeah, she had faith as well. Yeah, and then someone over here said, Yeah, he was, so he has the power to heal. We can talk about that a little bit, what that means in a minute. What else do you notice? That's really interesting. Yeah. So, what's your name? Jenny said, you know, he, he, he didn't have an agenda. He was willing to adapt, take things as it, I'm putting words in your mouth now, but take it as it comes. So, he's har- hardly like a, I don't know, Jesus CEO, you know, directed, here's my strategic plan. Uh, that doesn't look, this doesn't quite fit that. It does seem like he is um, fluid. Yeah, I mean, um, maybe, so I'm going to put words in your mouth again, Jenny, but um, sometimes if you're, if you're too directed, you aren't, able, you aren't able to respond to the human need right around you. Is that, yeah. that's sort of what, it, it, so I'm inferring that that's kind of what you're getting at. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, Jairus might want him to be a little more focused right now. Yeah. Okay, here's the plan. Let's remember. Yeah. So, uh, unpack that. Sort of, um, boy. There's no, there's no other, no other option, no other hope. Yeah, yeah. I think all these things are accurate. Okay, let me, let me, kind of, let me spend a little bit of time you thinking, thinking through this a little bit. Is that okay? You know, I've had more affirming crowds, but that's okay. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> So, I may, you know, maybe I'd like to start with, with Jairus, if that's okay. Okay. Um, so, uh, I think one thing we can confidently say about Jairus is that um, he's the wealthiest guy in town. To be the synagogue ruler means, in effect, he's, like the, he's the one who actually pays the bills for the synagogue. Um, and in that culture, um, the idea of uh, going from rags to riches... Uh, that just didn't happen. It, was a zero, it wasn't an expanding economy. Um, this was before uh, anyone had heard of joint stock companies or anything like that. It was an uh, agrarian uh, economy. And so people that are wealthy, uh, it, it, it was inherited. So I don't know if you know people like that. I, I drove a delivery truck for years in the Bay Area, and uh, I once delivered a Christmas tree to the home of Mrs. Bush uh, of the Anheuser-Busch fortune. And it never even occurred to me that there were people who had someone deliver a Christmas tree to their house. Uh, but, but, and she lived in Hillsborough, you know, but Hillsborough is like the old money in the Bay Area. So I got there late on a, on a, on a, on a Christmas evening. Uh, so it was dark and it was rainy. And, um, uh, and so I went to the servant centers and rang the doorbell. And it was, I mean, it was just perfect because there was a little, a little, um, uh, shelter a little roof over the servant's entrance enough to keep the people inside dry. 
So I'm standing there holding this Christmas tree. It's just pouring down rain. And a servant comes to the door. And I explain I'm here with the Christmas tree, even though it's pretty obvious I'm holding a Christmas tree. You know, I'm not here with a chicken or something. So um, he says, oh, Mrs. Bush wants to inspect the tree first. So I'm standing on the rain while Mrs. Bush, you know, finally shows up. And, and then she starts talking about the tree. She's commenting on the tree to the servant. It's like I'm just not even there. Like I'm a, like I'm a protoplasmic Christmas tree stand, you know, without any sort of uh, central nervous system or anything and, or any feelings. And uh, she starts complaining about the tree. Well, you know, it's not telling me. I asked for a six-foot tree. And finally, when she said I asked for a six-foot tree, I, 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 um, I was not a good employee of the firm because I reacted. I said, lady, I'm six foot one. The tree's at least a half foot taller than I am. Do you want it or not? <laughs> and uh, she, I mean, it wasn't used to be talked to, it wasn't used to being, you know, spoken to in that fashion. And uh, she, you know, uh, was a little taken aback. And the servant behind her, I'll never forget this, went. <laughs> and then he went. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty sure the gyrus is like that, right? So I mean, used to getting his way, used to getting his way, and we know that there's tension between Jesus and 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 the and the rulers, right? Because there's this episode where where the, some guys from his ta- from his uh, some people come and say to Jairus that his daughter has passed away. Now that ought to be communicated with with tenderness and care, and instead it's delivered with kind of harsh, um, stark uh, facticity. Your daughter's dead. But, you know, Jairus is in a synagogue, really. He said he's a dad. Who do anything? For his daughter. And so he approaches Jesus. He approaches Jesus. I'd like to say there may be um, there may be two observations we can learn here from Jairus. Um, one, and and as the story goes on, of course, Jesus makes him wait, and he makes him wait for a woman whose name we don't even know. He's probably never had to wait in his life. And Jesus teaches him a lesson without even saying anything about it, just by example. You know, our culture, our world is tending, trending toward the ever greater commodification of our lives. I don't know if you thought about this. But our culture, our economy even, and the way we think, of, not so much our economy, but the way we're asked to think about our economy, is it's all about how, it's all about money value. It's all about commodity. What can you buy? Nothing is worth anything. Nothing, of, nothing has any value except the monetary value. In our culture. We even think about education that way now. Not what it's doing to you how it's helping you think, how it's improving how, who you are as a person, but it's what you can do with it. And we even commodify human beings this way. Jairus certainly did. But Jesus taught him a lesson about the value of human beings. Even this woman, 
this woman who's, who, whose life story and the way her culture operates has broken her, has told her she's worth almost nothing. And Jesus teaches Jairus, not even saying it, the value of another human being. I, I wanna, I'm going to ask you to look around the room and look each other in the eyes. And some of you aren't doing it yet, so you need to go do, please do. So look, just look each other in the eyes. You know, the, the, the absolutely astonishing thing about, among, among the many astonishing things about the gospel is, is, is the gospel conveys this notion, this truth, that we become a body when we are believers. We need one another. And most of the time, I think, certainly was the case in the church I grew up in, a lot of church life is, we condescend to let each other exist. We don't live sufficiently into this idea that we need one another. So I was getting doing my PhD work in, uh, you know, in the, in the New Testament, and my wife and I were in a couple's Bible study. And when you're doing your PhD in the New Testament, you're in a couple's Bible study, you become answer boy for the Bible study. <laughs> and I love being answer boy. You know, it, it satisfied all kinds of insecurities I had. You know, so whatever question people had, they'd ask me it, I'd answer it. Even if I didn't know, I'd answer it. Like, what are they? I mean, <laughs> what do they know, right? I mean, they're going to believe me no matter what I say. That was awesome. And one, one night, a new couple came, Eric and Teresa Echikarai. And they both said, you know, we haven't gone to church in years. Eric, I don't think Eric grew up going to church. Teresa had gone when, he, when she was a kid, been gone like 20 years. And so I'm thinking to myself, no threat to answer, boy. <laughs> and uh, the first question came, and everyone looks at me, and I took a breath to start to answer, and all of a sudden, Teresa starts speaking. And the first thought in my mind, the very first thought in my mind, I can remember it so clearly, is, was, um, you know, somebody better explain the rules. <laughs> to the Bible study, you know, to, to, to Teresa, because she clearly doesn't know them. And then maybe about 10 seconds into it, I'm thinking, well, that's pretty good. Another 20 seconds into it, I'm thinking, I've I, I got to find a pen, because this is awesome what she's saying. And what I learned is, um, you know, God gave her a gift in the, uh, of insight into Scripture that goes beyond people with three PhDs. Because the real truth is we need one another. The Bible says, Paul says about the, about the body, um, when one part suffers, we all suffer. And I have often not felt the suffering of others. But if my whole left arm is anesthetized and it gets cut off, just because I don't feel it doesn't mean I ain't bleeding. My friends, you need one another. You are here together in this group to be to complete one another because none of us are fully complete. And that's part of the genius of the gospel is, to, is for us to recognize that we aren't the end of our own story. Does that make sense? So Jesus teaches Jairus that lesson. And the other thing I think that Jesus teaches Jairus, and this is a harder one, is to help him get over his addiction to self. You know, by definition, we, are, uh, we have some addiction to ourselves. That's what Paul says, right? That, you know, that which I don't want to do, I end up doing. There's this thing within us that is self-interested. Even if we're in our minds, we want to, be, want to live past that. 
we spasmodically live into that. It was a, uh, a splendid uh, thinker, a uh, Christian, maybe one of the great, the great writers in Christian spirituality. Uh, the 1700s, a guy named Francis Fenelon, who wrote these words. I'm, I'm going to read them slowly. It's, it's rich, and it's, it's painful, but it's true. God frees us from self by revealing our weaknesses and corruptions in a multitude of backslidings. Anybody here uh, w- would be horrified if, if what they've done in the last two days were broadcast or put on the screens right now? Uh, I would be. Anybody else? Just me? Am I the only one? <laughs> horrified. Disgusted with myself. Why does God, so the, these backslidings, God frees us from self by revealing our weaknesses and corruptions through a multitude of backslidings. All this dealing appears perfectly natural. And it is by this succession of natural means that we are burnt as if by a slow fire. We should like to be consumed at once by the flames of pure love. We'd like to be healed like that. That'd be awesome. But such an end would scarcely cost us anything. It is only an excessive self-love that desires to be healed in a single day. Why do we rebel? Do we rebel against the length of the way? Because we are so wrapped up in self and God must destroy this infatuation. We can't, it's very hard. We can't on our own escape the gravitational pull of our own selves. And our culture actually says we shouldn't even try. Years ago, I, 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 you know where the, the confluence where the middle and the north forks of the American River come together? I, I, I was uh, with my daughter. We, I got about this far into the, into the water before I realized I had left my cell phone in my pocket. Awesome. So I went to the Verizon store, and this young man uh, with gelled hair that I did not understand uh, um, said to me um, he didn't even ask me like what do you use your phone for he said um, this is the phone you want it's brand new it's, it's fast it's so fast it's faster than the Starship Enterprise <laughs> and, I, and I thought to myself you, know, you didn't even ask me like what I use a phone for and you're already telling me which one I want I said well I don't want fast he said of course you want fast everyone wants fast I said no I don't he goes not only do you want fast, you deserve it. <laughs> I thought, deserve? How do you know anything about me? I mean, but isn't that what our culture now says? Our culture now says, whatever you want, you should have, and you should have it right now. You don't think that affects how we think about everything else in our lives? That's being, we're, that's like, being being in a car with five smokers and the windows rolled up. We're breathing that stuff in. And so the gospel is in part about helping us break free of our addiction to ourselves. It's kind of a strange phrase, but but the mercy of adversity. 
Now there's also this woman, really interesting. Don't even know her name. She said she's been subject to bleeding for 12 years. So I don't know if you know this, but in Judaism, um, there were four, what they called the fathers of uncleanness. So um, you may remember that, uh, you know, in the history of Israel, they got in trouble a lot because they were too familiar with other people groups, right? And so uh, after the exile and when they came back under, under Ezra and Nehemiah, there were a group of religious leaders that decided, you know, we've got to somehow figure out how to break free of that pattern. And so they adopted a strategy of creating uh, uh, laws, ways of living, that were even more, um, that, that were expansive, even more expensive than Torah. So my grandfather was very, was very worried about breaking the law. He was at a law-abiding citizen, and he, and he screwed around with the, odom, uh, the speedometer of his 56 Chevy Bel Air so that it always read like 5 or 10 miles an hour faster than he was really going. That way he thought, I will never, you know, get a ticket for speeding. He, I mean, he was unaware of, of the hand gestures that people were giving him on the Bayshore Freeway as we were going like 35 miles an hour down the freeway, but he never got a ticket for speeding. It's that sort of idea. So they called it a hedge around Torah. These are what the New Testament calls the, the tradition of the elders. Remember this like, couple stories in the, in, the, in the Gospels where the Pharisees come to the disciples of Jesus and say, why don't you follow the tradition of the elders? You don't wash your hands before you eat or something like that. So in this system, they said there are, there are four things that make you unclean. And, there, and it, was, it was arbitrary, but the, but the idea was no one else would follow these rules. And if we follow these rules, this will keep us separate from every other people group. So four things make you unclean. Flow of blood, sexual fluids, uh, uh, a dead body, and leprosy. If you encounter any of these, you touch them, you're unclean for a, you're unclean for a week. Remember the story of the Good Samaritan? And there's a guy who's left for dead. And the Pharisee, I mean the priest and the Levite, they actually, they see him and then they walk like in a circle around him. Because if he is dead and their shadow falls across him, they're unclean for a day. So they don't want to take the chance. So here's the idea. This woman has had a flow of blood for 12 years, unceasing. She's been a perpetual source of uncleanness for 12 years. No one will touch her. No one will come in contact with her. No one will even come close enough for their shadow to fall across her for fear that they'll be made unclean. Imagine what that did to her self-perception, her self-image, her sense of who she was. You got a real picture of this because she hasn't even had the, the strength to approach Jesus frontally. She comes up behind him. I couldn't even imagine how, how, how crushing this would be for how, how she felt about herself. And Jesus, she's healed, but then Jesus stops and lavishes attention on her. And she can't help but notice he's making the richest guy in town, he's making Mrs. Bush, he's making Mrs. Bush wait while he speaks with her. 
what you've done. No matter what's been done to you. The God of the universe loves you, lavishes his attention on you, wants to restore to you a sense that you, well, the reality, a sense of the reality that you are a treasure in his sight. No matter what you've done, no matter what's been done to you, There ain't no better news than that, ladies and gentlemen. And may we be the conveyors, the purveyors of that to those around us. I need that. I'm a pretty self-confident guy, actually. But I still need that. May God allow me to be his agent of that expression to others. And then there's the crowd. Pretty typical crowd. They see things on the surface. They're not very reflective. Just the obvious. She's dead. They laugh at Jesus, etc. Their expectations are fixed. They hope for no more than they can see. How expansive is your viewfinder? If the God of the universe lives in you, what is possible goes beyond the rational. I encourage you to think about this week. Expanding upward the scale of your viewfinder. Because they didn't think anything was possible here. And with the touch of the hands of Jesus, the miracle happened. Last point. I don't know if you thought about this, but maybe you remember that in Judaism, whenever clean and unclean come into contact, unclean wins. Have you ever noticed that? The only place where clean wins over unclean is whatever is in the Holy of Holies. Whatever touches whatever's in the Holy of Holies becomes clean. So let's imagine you're in that crowd. And here's a woman with a flow of blood for 12 years. And she touches Jesus and immediately she's clean. What conclusion do you come to? Well, yeah, he's holy, but you know, even more than that, I mean, go, go to the next step. I mean, the Holy of Holies is symbols God's actual presence. Get it? Wow. So the healings, the miracles of healing, I mean, yeah, sure, it's, it's, it's awesome for the person who's healed, obviously, 
But, the, but, but one of the major conclusions is this is the very presence of God burst forth in our world. Hidden from us because we hope for no more than we can see. I'd known my wife Christina for maybe three months, and uh, we had started, uh, yeah, so it was Christmas time, and, and I was at her parents' home. We were late one night. Uh, the, the, she and her family were going to go away for a Christmas holiday, and we were on the, the front porch steps. It was maybe 11.30 night, and we were kissing. I remember that very with great, uh, with great detail, uh, that part of it. And, um, and, uh, and, we were, and then at one point, we you know, stopped kissing for a minute, and she looked at me and said, I want to spend the rest of my life with you. And my response was, suave as I am, was, um, I, I, I like you too. <laughs> See, the signs were there. The signs were there, but I didn't see them. But in a rush, they all came clear, right? You ever had that experience? Where stuff is right in front of you and you don't see it? Everybody else around you sees it? It's like this with Jesus. If the God of the universe dwells in you, is active in this community... What isn't possible? Now, we're not, the, it's, we're not the setters of the agenda. It's not our strategic plan. And as, I'm sorry, what's your name again? Jenny said so brilliantly earlier, he doesn't appear to have a strategy. He takes it as it comes. Maybe that is his strategy. As we go forth from this place, let us commit ourselves to begin to practice an expansive understanding of what God wants to do in us, to us, and through us. May we have eyes to see the people we encounter, other Christians, other believers, but also folks we see at the grocery store or Starbucks or wherever as those who need God's touch, his healing, and to whom we may actually be the very agents of his love. Amen? Amen. I'm done. Is that okay? Thank you, Father, for this day, for your love for us, for the fact that you don't uh, vaporize us the first, second, or 800 millionth time we sin. You are patient and kind and loving and forgiving, and you draw us to maturity in you. May we be the agents of your grace and love, we pray. And all God's people said.